Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Smart Council. This episode is one of a series of lectures that I delivered in a class setting. The class was an introduction to addictions, and the context was a master's in counseling program at a Protestant university. Given this context, the episodes are longer, live, and a bit more organic than normal. You may hear gaps in conversation. These represent where I paused to interact with a student question. Otherwise, uh, this is me having the most fun public speaking that I can imagine. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. All right, welcome back to Class Time, COU 655, here at the Master's in Counseling program. I am again Reese Basimio, your host favorite, hopefully favorite host for talking about addictions, um, overview of addictions. So we have been uh, trekking through different theories of addiction, uh, examining and exploring the question of just what is addiction, this mysterious phenomenon of people doing things they really don't want to do, and even though they know that they're bad for them, and even though there's big consequences, they continue doing the things. Why do people do this? Uh, so uh, we've explored again touched on um, like a moral criminal model that puts a lot of responsibility on the person's free choice and says something's wrong with the person, that deviant person. Uh, Talked a lot about the disease model that just says, hey, the brain is broken. Uh, Talked about uh, developmental model and evolutionary model that say, hey, it's coming out of the context of how a person's developed. And they've just had to adapt to their environments with some maladaptive ways and their coping skills are immature highly immature. Um, we talked about the uh, the diathesis stress theory and the biopsychosocial model that really look at it's a convergence of factors. And there's stuff in the body, there's stuff in the mind, there's stuff in the society, there's stuff in the genes, all of that working together to create an addiction. Uh, we've looked at family systems that says a person is a single cell in an organism of the family and it's the system together that creates the dysfunction, and ultimately it's the system together that has to pull out of the addiction together. And uh, we've looked at, there have been some fun ones. Um, we briefly touched on the genetic model that has to do with like the inherited genes and didn't put a lot of stock in that one, although it's, it's always interesting. Uh, talked about a brief approach to like spiritually speaking, what is going on with addictions, and talked a little bit about the disease of sin and uh, untamed passions and um, learning to recovery through a lot of spiritual discipline. Uh, last but not least, we had talked about uh, addiction as a trauma reaction, recognizing that there are underlying factors, uh, very painful underlying factors, usually generating the, the compulsive behaviors. Uh, something important to remember is that no one is an addict for no reason. It always happens in a context, and like we said, generally very painful, sometimes very disconnected, isolated context. Uh, but there's always a reason for these things, uh, uh, usually a sublogical, irrational, emotionally driven reason. Uh, and we also talked about that time how 
since addiction is not logical, uh, logic will not get you out of it, which is part of my critique on relying on uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for recovery. Also, why re uh, also why you you can't think your way out of addiction, and also you can't punish it out of someone else, uh, which is part of why like the war on drugs like just doesn't work, is because addiction comes out of a non-logical place. So it's going to be a non-logical, more emotional, more embodied route to recovery. So now we're going to touch on one more model. So this will be a, a shorter bit. Um, so we're going to talk about addiction as an attachment failure or a bonding disorder or as an intimacy disorder. And this is a, what I think is probably the best explanation uh, overall for, for what's going on. Um, granted, it's going gonna, it's gonna to always be a case of both and there's going to be a lot of factors going on in, in everybody's lives. Uh, you know, like there, there's always a disease component because it's happening in the brain and the brain does get damaged by a repeated exposure to the things. And there is going to be kind of a choice component to it because we, we do make choices. Uh, it's always going to be a spiritual thing because, uh, you know, all things are spiritual. Uh, and it's always going to be a family systems thing because we all exist in the context of some sort of family. But, but looking for what is the most powerful driving factor that explains the most things all on its own. Uh, this is the one that I think is the best explanation for, for what's going on. So well, that's what we'll be talking about now. So addiction as attachment failure. Uh, first, quick review. What is attachment? What happens in attachment? So uh, attachment science coming out of the work of John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, and which has been verified and validified by many people in many times and places now. Um, Attachment talks about the, the bonds that we form early in life, uh, early in the, within the first two years of life with whoever our primary caregiver happens to be. Maybe dad, mom, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, uh, older sibling, could, could be anyone. So, uh, so in, in, an ideal, in an ideal relationship or what we would call a secure attachment, uh, what happens is that the so the, the, the kid comes into the world not having any coping skills, not having any emotional regulation skills, not having any sense of self or, or, any, or any sense of you know, security or resilience. All of that has to be grown, developed, and, and, and conditioned. So ideally what happens is that um, when the kid has some sort of distress, they're hungry, they're lonely, they're cold, they're just uncertain of the world, they express that through crying, or something, and ideally, the, the 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 caregiver is able to to be there, to be present, to be attuned, and it's a very specific kind of present. It's not just I'm there in the room. It's not even just I'm holding you. It's not even just like I'm giving you like like milk if that's what you need. It's I'm completely emotionally present with you and your emotions. So uh, it's been called a right brain to right brain connection. Um, right brain. Being more, more, more the part of the brain that involves relationship and emotions and intuition, uh, you know that that part of the brain that's that's sublogical, subverbal, very embodied, compared to the left brain, which tends to be more logical, linear, data oriented. Um, you know, left brain is where you might have what we call the the noetic consciousness, where it's like I know data, I know facts. Like for me, like I know there 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 is a place called Giza with big pyramids. I've never seen them, so I don't know. I've seen pictures. 
compared to in the right brain where, where we have what's called like the, the autonoetic type of knowledge. That's the knowledge by experience. So I autonoetically know there is this place called the Golden Gate Bridge. It's surrounded by fog. It's very high. It's rickety. You look over and you feel whoosh in your stomach because it's so very high. Um, so that, that different kind of knowledge. So uh, it's, so it's one thing as you, as you get older to know noetically in the left brain, I have a parent, they care for me, I'm safe, et cetera, et cetera, nice things. Uh, it's a much different thing to know autonoetically in the right brain, in your body, in your instincts, in your reflexes, that yes, I am loved, I am safe, I am welcome. Uh, and those right brain lessons, we could say, are the most important and the most believable and the most indelible. So if in early childhood all things go well, uh, you ha the you know, baby has a caregiver who is able to attune to them, to be fully present and fully welcoming of the kid's experience. Uh, what that requires on the part of the parent, the caregiver, is to themselves also be fully present with their own emotions and their own experience. Because if you can't be, if you can't tolerate your own experience, you can't, you cannot tolerate the experience of another. And so it takes a, a quite a bit of resilience and empathy work to, to be able to attune to someone very well. Um, but a bit insecure attachment, um, the, the, the caregiver attunes to, to, to the child consistently on an ongoing basis. Uh, not, always, not always perfectly. Uh, it doesn't need to be quite perfect. It just needs to be consistent, more reliable than not. And the kid needs to have this instinctive, embodied sense that, hey, when I have a need, I can get it met. I know how to get it met. I don't have to work too hard or I, 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 can, I have to you know, engage a little bit, but I can count on my caregiver to be there and I can count on having help when I need it. Uh, and I, I can also kind of count on having space when I need it too. What that creates is that creates a sense of uh, trust, of optimism, of confidence, of competence. Um, it paves the way for a sense of belonging and a sense of industry and a sense of uh, connection, sense of purpose. So uh, like, like every, every good and healthy thing ultimately starts with secure attachment. Uh, referencing, we talked about in the spiritual model of addiction, how uh, you know, people are built with uh, an infinite desire, desire which can only be satisfied by what we as Christians understand as an infinite God. Um, there's kind of kind of a sense sense of a, a leaning toward a secure attachment there. You know, you develop a secure attachment, a proper focus on God, and things are ordered well from there. Kind of the same premise going on with a secure attachment. So then what goes wrong? <laughs> so caregivers are not able to be this a lot of the times. Uh, so some caregivers are just consistently absent. Um, that leads to what we call avoidant attachment, in which the kid has to adapt to not having, to being, to being able to count on having to do everything by themselves and not being able to rely on other people. Uh, and so they'll often present as very independent, linear, logical, data-oriented. Uh, they tend to not get super close, not be super emotional. It's not that they don't have emotions and then it's not that they don't have needs and it's, it's especially not that they don't have connection needs. That's too many double negatives. Grammar fail. Uh, you know, th these folks, they do have emotions. They do have deep connection needs, but they've adapted to an absence of secure attachment figure by suppressing all of that compared to our anxiously attached friends uh, like, like me, um, who maybe their caregiver was either inconsistently there or overwhelmingly there. And um, what was lacking was the opportunity for space or independence uh, or something like that. Uh, and so because there's that inconsistency there, there's this preoccupation 
what's my caregiver going to do next? What do I have to do to get their attention now? Are they going to be for me or not? Are they going to be too much for me or not? And sometimes they are and it's great and sometimes they're not and it's bad. Um, so it's kind of like it's kind of like anxious attachment. It's sort of like like Portland weather where we, we talk about having like all four seasons in the course of a day. And um, it's just it's absurd. Like you never know how to dress because the weather is never going to stay the same for more than an hour. And so you end up being really obsessed with it and preoccupied with it and really stressed out. And you just there's no way to dress for that. So it's completely vexing. Um, and then there's the disor disorganized attachment style that comes when the caregiver themselves actually becomes a source of terror and has now turned around to, to attack the child. And there's there's no way to adapt to that uh, except by dissociating. Uh, and we talked a lot about how addiction can, is, uh, it's a form of dissociation and it's it's one method by which people detach from themselves. So that, that's our brief review of attachment and, and what happens with attachment failure. Attachment failure is anything other than being able to achieve that secure attachment. Um, and so what that results in is that results in you know, a kid lacking a sense of trust, lacking a sense of competency, lacking a sense of confidence, lacking a sense of security, lacking a secure source of that anyway, um, because it doesn't exist in a person outside of themselves. And so what, what ends up happening is they experience the, this void. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our emotions focused therapy friends will will say that um, our primary needs are for relationship and connection, and thus our primary consequences or our primary crises will also be related to relationship and attachment. And so where there's no attachment, where there's no attachment security, there's going to be attachment distress. And it is the most profound distress we can experience because it's a sense of like, I think I'm alone and I don't have relationships and, and ultimately a, a sense of what's wrong with me. And it's so deeply written in, like you can't, you just can't escape it. So um, so then what we'll find is like what, what you end up doing is like you, you, you act out in different ways to, to escape that sense. Attachment failure and intimacy, intimacy disorder as an explanation for what happens with addictions. So what it says is that, um, like we said, primary caregivers have failed to establish secure attachment with the person while they're in their infancy. Thus, the person, the, the little, little baby into a, growing up into a kid, never developed an adequate sense of trust or a sense of self or sense of belonging, etc. Uh, and with that, they did not develop emotional resilience. One of the key things to remember about uh, attachments is that, again, uh, a, baby's not a baby is born with no coping skills, no emotional regulation skills at all. So, uh, so this is part of why, like, enforcing like strict discipline like corporeal punishment on like infants and like toddlers and young kids who maybe don't even have full verbal skills like just doesn't make any sense because like um they don't have any coping skills they're needing to learn everything and they're going to learn it through experiences and through 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 an attachment context not a not a logical like consequence sort of context so uh so yeah so uh little kids adapted to being alone or adapted to being always stressed out or, you know, always in this uh, toxic environment, they, they don't have a person who will be a secure attachment figure. Uh, but those attachment figures are still, those attachment needs are still there. And so what's going to happen is the kid is going to find an attachment figure or they're going to find something to bond with. And what that tends to be is what helps them in the moment. And what that tends to be is these experiences that bring about high amounts of dopamine. Dopamine is the pleasure hormone. Dopamine is the 
the hormone that the, your, your nervous system uses to tag, to give a chemical tag to experiences interpreted it as good for existence or good for survival. Um, remember again, kind of in the evolu evolutionary sense, we might say, you know, um, where, you know, there's scarcity of food or there's, you know, ever-present threats and danger. So I'm going to be drawn to things that are good for me. I'm going to be drawn toward, you know, foods with lots of nutrients, foods with lots of sugar. I'm going to be drawn to something like sex um, because those are activities that are ultimately good for survival. I'm going to be drawn toward connection with people because, uh, you know, I need the herd. I need the community around me to survive. Uh, so dopamine is meant as, meant as a... It's a survival aid to help us recognize on a very instinctive level, on a very embodied level, this is good for survival. Do this many times because it's good for you. And in the case of like, you know, fruits and vegetables, that's great. Um, in the case of sex in certain contexts, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, what goes wrong then is where, like we said, when we talked about the evolutionary model, what we have in our world today, um, there, there are very many threats the threats are a little bit different because it's not usually like threats of like wild animals or um, or, or things like that. It's going to be a lot more. There, there, there's social threats. There's economic threat. Um, there's definitely person to person violence threats for for sure. But 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 like the th the threats are a little bit different and the resources are a little bit different. Uh, there's also a big difference in in just what gives us dopamine. Like <laughs> they didn't have crack cocaine ten thousand years ago. They didn't have methamphetamines. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's always been, uh, you know, there's always been sexual seduction going on, but they didn't have like digital pornography like they do now, even like 20 years ago. Uh, so, uh, so there's been a change in what gives us those highly dopaminergic experiences. Um, but, but what happens in, in the attachment sense is that, you know, you have it, say you have a kid who they're, they're experiencing abuse or they're experiencing attachment failure, or they're just, even if they have a relatively safe, stable life, but they're not getting any emotional nurture, they're not getting any emotional connection or emotional intimacy from a parent, and they're just kind of like emotionally alone, those attachment needs are still there. And so what they'll reach for is are these intense experiences, these intensely pleasurable experiences that form a substitute for those intimate experiences. And this is a really important thing when we're talking about relationships. We, we, we do not want to confuse intensity for intimacy. Uh, we don't want to mix up intense pleasure for safety security. Uh, and this goes for, for parental relationships, this goes for romantic relationships, and this definitely goes for spiritual relationships. Like when we think about how are we approaching God, like let's not confuse like an emotional spiritual high for like actual intimacy with God. Um, likewise, when we approach our partners, let's not uh, mix up. Uh, we're having this intense romance and all of these feelings and this really hot sex and like um, all of this like intense fun stuff. That's not intimacy, that's intensity. Uh, and it can be really it can be it can bring about quite a bit of chaos to search after the the intensity and it can cause a lot of pain and consequences to say like we have to have these really high levels of dopamine for everything to be good that just causes a lot of chaos and everything all that to say all of this like you know belaboring the point that uh the the, the intimacy disorder the attachment disorder is that uh the kid bonds to the drug you know so so thinking you know uh you know seven or eight year old kid like finds porn finds masturbation and discovers, hey, this is how I can self-soothe and cope and feel good about myself. Dad and mom aren't doing that for me, so I found a way, I found something that will do that for me. 
Or you could say a 10 or 11 year old discovers alcohol, same thing. Same kid discovers weed, same thing. Uh, you know, kids discover screens, they discover video games, they, they discover movies and TV. These things that uh, consistently get them out of themselves. They consistently get them out of their feelings, out of their stresses, help them to escape themselves a little bit. Uh, the kid's gonna f essentially bond with these things as surrogate parents. Only they're, 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 they're viciously, they're vicious parents and later will exact a really high cost for this, uh, this, this security. So, okay, so looking at uh, addiction and then as an intimate intimacy disorder, we'd say the problem is insecure attachment styles or attachment failure. Like we said, the avoidant attachment, the anxious attachment, the disorganized attachment. And on one sense, we'd say the solution is uh, earned secure attachment. Uh, that, that, that's an attachment term. And uh, with some thoughts, some reflections, some work, some, some relationship risks, uh, a person in insecure attachment uh, can develop a more secure attachment. They can they can learn some new skills, learn some new ways of relating, and grow in a lot of security that way. Uh, it can happen. It takes a lot of work, but but it can happen. Um, in a sobriety sense, we'd say uh, what that would that would mean is not just earn secure attachment, but but you know breaking the bonds with your your chemical attachment failure. Your, your chemical attachment figure and then reestablishing them with an actual person. Um, that would be that would be the goal. Here we say, yes, uh, addiction is a bonding or intimacy disorder, or we could say a pathological ex relationship to mood altering experience. It's a quote from the uh, Out of the Shadows book by Patrick Carnes. Um, and he's talking specifically about sex addiction at that point, but it goes for 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 all addictive behaviors too. Um, we develop a pathological relationship with a pathological uh, relationship to mood-altering experience, which could be sex, it could be porn, could be alcohol, could be cannabis, uh, could be food, definitely. Um, uh, could be relationships themselves. Again, relationships that are built on like infatuation and romance and passion and, and intensity, not actual intimacy, mutuality, knowing each other. And so we can say the person then in this this model is someone who has learned through a series of traumas and abusive relationships and other attachments um, essentially to not trust. The, the person, the addicted person in this intimacy disorder model is someone who has learned not to trust anyone um, and maybe not even themselves. Uh, there's a belief component to this one. Uh, four, four basic beliefs driving, driving this failure, uh, this, this uh, attachment failure model. Um, belief number one is that I am basically a bad, unworthy person. Uh, belief number two is that no one would love or accept me as I am, or no one would love me if they really knew blank about me. Uh, this happens to me, I did this thing, whatever. Uh, so there's a high degree of self-hatred, self-loathing combined with secrecy, which just leads to isolation. Um, there's this third belief that my needs are never going to be met if I depend on others. Um, and that could be maybe specifically my, my sexual needs, but, in, but generally my, my, my emotional needs, um, my logistical needs. Like I cannot count on other people if I depend on others. So I need to combination fear others and trust my own self only. Um, and, and then there, all of that is tied together with this fourth, fourth belief that the thing is my most important need. That thing, of course, being whatever is the object of obsession, whatever is the object of addiction. Uh, it could be, you know, sex is my most important need, weed is my most important need, alcohol, more money, more work, more exercise, 
uh, is my most important need. Um, and uh, and again, when when it comes to something when it comes to something like 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 drugs and alcohol, it, it would be kind of easy to say, oh yeah, that that's not correct because we don't need those things. With something like like food or something like sex, you know, those are more. It's going to be more complicated there because we do need those things and we need to have a relationship with those things. Uh, and it's not bad to do those things. What happens though is some people start to do these things in a way that is, you know, it's compulsive, it's out of control, it's disconnecting them from others, it's disconnecting them from themselves. It's not a, they're not bringing their whole experience, their whole self to the experience. And they're essentially using these experiences again as like surrogate emotional parents. You know, you look at these four beliefs and what you're creating is somebody who is isolated, emotionally isolated, untrusting, un, uh, unable or unwilling to connect to others and believes basically that they're a shitbag and, uh, and not worthy to, to approach relationships. This is shame. This is the shame core. Shame is at the core of addiction, shame and isolation. Uh, so here, here we see it. One important thing to remember is that the most believable truths are the instinctive and embodied things we learn in our most important relationships. So thinking about those four beliefs we just talked about. Um, so, you know, we, we, you know, someone might say, oh, I believe that I'm worthless and I'm, you know, not worth anything. And we might say, oh, that's not true. You're made in the image of God and you're lovely and we like you. And like, that's just not true. Uh, and we can say those things to people and we could say, and we could believe that they're true. But, you know, to the person who believes that they're nothing and that they're, they're worthless or, or loathable, um, who has learned that through how they've been treated through through many years, uh, you know, they've, they've learned that in their body. They've learned that in their instincts. They've learned that in their limbic system, the core of their brain. Uh, and again, that's, that's an embodied lesson that can't be logiced away. It has to be experienced, reconditioned out, and that just takes a long time. Um, so, but, and, but again, I mean, optimistically on the other end, you know, you know hope for, for those of us who, who are parents, you know, um, you know, when we can consistently create for our kids the experience of, you know, loving and embracing them, attuning to them, welcoming their emotions, welcoming their questions, welcoming their doubts, uh, welcoming them even in their failures and saying like, hey, you know, we need, you know, some of these things are not okay, but you are okay. You and me are okay. Our relationship, our usness is okay. Uh, we can work through this together. Uh, you know, that can also be an embodied thing that a person learns. And that is also pretty immutable if it is securely in there. So there's, you know, for every, for every place that things are dismal here, there, there's also some hope too. Other thoughts on uh, addiction is intimacy disorder. Um, pros of this model. Uh, I like this because I think it factors in, again, the, the full life and the whole body experience of addiction and compulsion, it factors in the underlying factors, uh, and very particularly, it makes room for the full range of life experiences. Uh, some of these other models we've talked about put a lot of emphasis on the chemicals, the, the drugs and the alcohol in particular, they get a lot of attention. Um, something like a, like an intimacy disorder, it really allows for there to be a lot of experiences that a person would seek out. And, and there's a way, uh, I think this is really important because, um, so if you look at um, kind of a combination of addiction as, as, a, as a bonding disorder, as well as a trauma reaction, it's a sense of like, I'm bonding to something that will help me disconnect from myself in a moment of stress. And so yeah, drugs and alcohol get a whole lot of attention. Sex and porn, gambling, they get a lot of attention. You know, um, screen time is getting a little bit more attention lately. You know, 
some of us know to think, okay, you can exercise compulsively, you can be a workaholic, you can be a rageaholic. Uh, things like sadness, though, that doesn't always get attention. You know, things like screen time in general, like, uh, hey, just your Facebook users or, you know, all of us who have phones and bring them out when we're standing in line six feet apart uh, at the grocery store, uh, you know, but, you know, you think about it. Think about the things that you reach for when you have a moment of silence or a moment of boredom or a moment when you're feeling kind of glum. Can you, do you tend to just sit and breathe, you know, say a prayer in those moments? Maybe so. That would be a healthy thing. Or do you more likely tend to reach for your phone? Do you reach for the TV? Do you reach for, you know, the chips and salsa? Do you reach for the chocolate? Do you reach for, um, like the aspirin, the Tylenol, um, some of, some of these other things? Do you, do you reach for the news? Do you reach for like a a conflict with someone, um, you know, there, there's a way that um, I, I think looking at addiction in, in this sense as a, it's, a, it's a bonding disorder, it, it actually tends to implicate a whole lot more people in this idea of like, what, what is addiction? Um, and then when you think about like, like comorbid disorders, someone who has PTSD or who has ADHD or depression or anxiety, I mean, there, there's, you know, these specific like anxiety or depression or, you know, um, impulsive uh, hyperactivity symptoms that, that are going to come up, but, but you got to wonder like, so, so how many of those have their root in, um, there's not a secure attachment for this person, or there wasn't at a crucial moment and how much stuff do we do to soothe ourselves because we can't get a good relationship or, and it's not always our fault either. Like there's sometimes there's just not a good relationship to be had. And the consequences of this are, are far and wide. Cons and limitations of this approach, um, Kind of like the, like the family systems and biopsychosocial model, they're logistically, this one's logistically challenging to, to work with in that it involves a lot of pieces and you, there's just a whole lot more to coordinate. Um, besides that, uh, it's tricky because it's kind of countercultural. Uh, we could say our whole society is prohibitive of healthy relationships and we can look at trends toward consumerism and hyper-individualism and just uh, a radical obsession, prioritization of like entertainment and pleasure and you know, hedonism and things. Um, you know, we're culture built on, you know, you know, get the biggest bang out of your buck as often as you can get it and go for like the most pleasurable experiences and, you know, darn anyone who tries to tell you not to be everything you want to be, um, you know, uh, a society, uh, that's those sort of attitudes that they're not usually conducive to mindful reflection and secure intimate attachments. So in saying, Hey, we need to develop secure attachments. There's, there's there, there's a lot of societal trends, especially in like pop culture media, that are going to push against that, and that's just, you know, we should push against that, but it but it but it's a lot, so you know, just brace yourself. Uh, clinical implications: What do we do with this in the counseling context? So, to you're essentially doing atta- when you're doing addictions recovery, you're essentially doing attachment work, which means that there has to be a high relationship component to it. So remember, you yourself, the therapist, you are your own best intervention because you are the relationship. You know, if you cannot fully show up in that relationship, then it's going to be compromised. Uh, so you need to be able to be fully present, emotionally resilient, uh, very non-judgmental, and very able to be there. Uh, group work is absolutely essential. And you're going to get a lot of complaints about this. People who will find all sorts of excuses and reasons not to come to group. Uh, never give up on politely nudging, pushing people to, to get into groups. Because 
Uh, and again, I mean, it has to be a healthy group, obviously, and you have to kind of know what you're doing there too, but you cannot do attachment work without attachments. So you need groups. Um, we might talk a little bit more about 12 steps as we go, depending on time. Uh, there's a lot of contention around the 12 steps. Um, people who don't like them really don't like them. And they have some, some compelling reasons for that. Um, a lot of people really like them and a lot of people have been really helped by them. And when you, when you talk with people who have been helped by them for whom they have worked, um, why they have worked has a lot to do with the relationships and the community that they form. What the 12 steps offer above and beyond anything else is they offer a place where you can consistently come, be fully known and fully accepted. That's a really rare thing. And they do it for free. That's nice. That, that, that is really nice. So, uh, I mean, I do that. I do that for people. I do that in my groups, but you're paying me. So that's not quite as good. Other things in a clinical setting, you're gonna to wanna to be teaching about healthy relationships. After, after you've taught sobriety tips, after you've taught relapse prevention skills, and as you teach, how do you cope with your emotions? And as you work through the trauma, you also wanna teach, here's how to form a healthy relationship with a person, here's how you do healthy communication, healthy conflict resolution in particular, healthy grief, that's not on the slide, but that's, that's an important thing too. Uh, Spiritual integration points and this overlaps, you know, how do we work with people as Christians? How do we work with people in the church? Um, you know, um, how we attach to people has a lot to do with how we attach to God and how we understand how God looks at us has a lot to do with how we attach back and how we attach to people. Um, you know, there's a lot of stories, you know, people who come from a, a theological environment that teaches this really angry authoritarian God who's out to, you know, punish them for violating some code and offending him. Um, there's a lot of people that have a hard time creating a secure attachment with that God. And I'm like, yeah, I would too. That's terrible. Um, you know, compared to, you know, understandings that say, you know, God is, God, God is a shepherd. God is merciful. God is a physician who wants to heal us. You know, we haven't offended him in our sin. We have just gotten sick and we need, we need a healer. We need a redeemer. Um, you know, <laughs> That God is a lot more, uh, a lot more sensible. Uh, anyway, there's a, there's a different rant we could have about that. Um, but this also talks about how are we responding to addicted people in church, and when when they show up, you know, again, are we trying to to punish them or to exclude them or to keep <laughs> keep our kids safe from them, or are we saying, hey, I, I see I see your addiction. By the way, did you see me? I'm the chief of sinners over here, and I'm you know, almost too preoccupied with my own repentance to really worry about your sins. But okay, since you're here, we'll take care of you. We'll include you. We'll bring you in. We'll walk through this together. Uh, you know, it'd be great if, you know, you know, an addicted person could be part of a church community and know that their relationship with the church was never in jeopardy, no matter what they did. Um, but that, but that they, they would be challenged. They would be encouraged to, to change and all of that uh, and, and to grow. Um, but never at the cost of relationship if they fail, and always in the sense of like, and by the way, we're all on this journey to journey together. So it'd be great to uh, fear people less and pursue relationship with them more. Is that all I need to say here? Addiction is a bonding disorder. Yeah, the, that's that's kind of the, the main, main takeaway to take away from here is this idea that uh, in the absence of a secure bonding attachment figure, people will bond to their drug of choice. And... The recovery from that has to do with um, breaking those attachments and then reforming healthy attachments with actual people, with actual groups. So with that, that'll conclude 
our uh, long diatribes on just what is addiction. And uh, next we will be talking about um, the addiction interaction disorder. And we'll start to get from there into how to diagnose it and um, things to watch for and what's the difference between an addicted person and someone who just likes to do the thing a lot and uh, other, other things we'll explore that. So thank you again for hanging with us and we'll see you next time. love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Mm-hmm.